Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 91. It's been a year of change at Real Python. The Real Python team has written, edited, curated, illustrated, and produced a mountain of Python articles this year. We also added many new members to the team, updated the site's features, and created new styles of tutorials and projects. Two members of the Real Python team join us this week, Martin Broyce and Sadie Parker. We wanted to share a year-end wrap-up with a collection of articles and step-by-step projects that showcase what our team created this year. Sadie and Martin helped to shepherd articles through the multi-stage editing process. Along with the rest of the team, they make sure these resources impart crucial Python knowledge and provide a thorough didactic experience. We hope you enjoy this review. Programming note, there won't be an episode next week, but we'll be back in January and look forward to bringing you a year full of great guests, articles, and topics. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Well, it's that time of year where we're going to wrap up articles here at Real Python, and I have two guests, former guests of the show, different times. First is Martin Broyce. Thanks for coming back, Martin. Happy to be here. (laughs) All right. And the other person you hear kind of laughing in the background, that's Sadie Parker. (laughs) Hi. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah. Sadie was on the show back in uh, the summer of 2020 to talk about us adding transcripts to all our video courses. It was 2020. For some reason, I thought it was 2019, but of course it was 2020. Yeah. It's been a yeah. <laughs> it's been a year. Yeah. It's been been interesting times. <laughs> and speaking of which, there've been a lot of new things at uh Real Python over the last year. Martin, you became full-time in the spring, is that right? That's right. Yeah. I've been a full-time content creator since uh start of April. What what are the other kinds of things that you're doing at Real Python now? So I'm kind of floating in between both the written and the video contents. Um I'm producing video courses and also written tutorials and then a lot of the feedback rounds and reviews on all on all different levels i'm involved with those as well yeah got your hands in lots of different areas of (laughs) of that that's great and i appreciate your help with the the video courses that's been great oh yeah another eye on the reviews of that has been really helpful for me and sadie you've changed to do quite a bit more this year with real python yeah what what have you started to do now (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, when we last spoke in middle of 2020, like you said, I started with transcripts and subtitles for video courses. So I'm still doing that. And then middle of this year, I guess it was June when Joanna left, I took over copy editing and didactic review and publication and timing type work from Joanna and Jacob. So just a lot of work with the written content pipeline, which I wasn't really involved with before. So it's been pretty cool to see both two sides of of content at Real Python, we got the articles and the videos and everything that goes on there. Yeah, 
so yeah, it's been a lot of fun tasks to take on. It's been really cool to get to know how Real Python works uh, on the inside, all the great review steps and all the processes that are set up. The job has been, I think, like for a lot of people at RealPython, it's a lot of going back and forth between people and tech, which is a pretty fascinating intersection. Right. You're kind of looking at like instruction manuals for how to do X, Y, and Z, and you're looking at the bare bones skeleton of Python, which itself is always changing. And then you're kind of trying to combine that with getting into the minds of people at different levels of Python expertise and from different parts of the world. and yeah, it's a it's been a pretty interesting it's been a pretty interesting job. It's mostly kind of like I guess a lot of jobs like how to communicate effectively and how to view a topic from someone else's perspective and it's really interesting when that when that gets combined with technology. It's been fun. Yeah, we we have quite the international <laughs> authorship if you will. It's kind of amazing. Really cool. Yeah, we've had some interesting uh Changes. There's been you know a few things that have carried over editions uh, that we were doing from last year, like uh, office hours. And Martin, you've been really involved in that. And I, I know you want to talk about that a little bit further as we go along in this mm-hmm. uh, episode. But who's who's been hosting office hours with you this year? So after David's been doing the office hours uh, basically by himself with the community, and uh, when David left, we kind of tried to take it over as a team and split up the responsibilities for office hours some more. So um, all of the, um, I think most of the core content uh, developers that are working at Real Python full time are now splitting it up, and we've we've got a little wheel going, and there's often more than one person joining. Uh, so it's it's developed as quite a nice, um, I don't know, a, a community space where we also get the chance to uh, hang out as content creators with each other and with the community and answer questions and go over some tutorials and just do some learning and, and teaching together. So it's been quite fun. I'm I'm so glad that that's continued on. I think it's a great resource for all the real Python members. We have stopped recording them also uh, as a with the idea that we want to make it uh, really as an inclusive space where people feel comfortable sharing questions that maybe they consider to like not be beginner questions or something yeah. that they might not want to ask if it's being recorded and just to make it as um, yeah as welcoming as possible. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Nice. What are some of the other changes? Uh, I think this year we started doing the the news articles. That was one of the other big changes this year. Yeah. And David started those, I think, I don't know, was it February or March? I think could be. The, the first one I see is April. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David was doing those for like several months, at least four months. And then, so we've got a lot of great news articles from the first half of the year and the second half of the year. David worked on those first ones. Then we got one by Bartosz Chinsky and by Gear Arne Kiele. Yep. Yeah. They're, I think they're, they're really fun. I've, I've enjoyed uh, working on them. What, the what's authors. the point of this news articles? So they're kind of like these short and sweet summaries of what happened during any particular month. They're, going to be like particularly helpful for someone who works with python but isn't necessarily plugged into like the day-to-day month-to-month changes with the language or helpful packages or all that type of stuff so python community news yeah yeah that is a wonderful way to summarize it (laughs) python community news and it's been quite the year for the news too with everything from you know I've had episodes about a lot of the stuff like the developer in residence mm-hmm. program starting uh, Python 310 was 
lot of big changes with that this year. Uh-huh. Uh, some some other kind of squabbling within the community, and then resolution <laughs> of that. It's it's been a a newsworthy <laughs> year. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that we've been continuing that. I never really thought that I would know much about like Python news. I didn't honestly before working on these news articles. I didn't know there was much news to be had around Python. Like, right, right. <laughs> most of the news that I read is like politics and like celebrities. Right. But when when reading over these articles, which are like honestly really good summaries of what's going on, and they kind of dig into it just enough so that you know where to look for more news, but they're not really like a deluge of information, if that's the right word. Yeah. And yeah, you get a little taste of the drama. You get an idea of what's happening. Um, like, for example, at the Python Software Foundation. Yeah, changes there, yeah. And yeah, it seems like it seems like you've had some of these people who've been in the Python news on your show, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a it's been a fun year for that. And lots of positive changes in the world of Python over the last year. So that's been great. Oh, one more one more cool thing about the news articles that I've noticed is a lot of times if there's like a call to action to the Python community, the authors often plug that. Like, for example, I believe they were recently collecting proposals for next year's PyCon. So the author included that in the news article, which is really cool. There was also, I believe, like a call for participation in a Python development survey. So, yeah, if like you're not really plugged into Python news, but you do want to be a little bit more involved in the community, there's at least I've seen really helpful information in the news articles for for staying up to date. Yeah, that stuff can pass you by pretty pretty fast if you're... Mm-hmm not you know sitting there on twitter or uh following other news feeds so it's kind of nice place to kind of check in that's great yeah they're really cool we're here to cover the wrap-up of articles and these are just a highlight of all the different types of things that are covered at real python and we wanted to each of us individually to pick three of them to kind of shine a spotlight on and then we'll also have a little section at the end that's kind of have some special mentions of some other other areas that we weren't even able to cover with that small selection. And so I was going to start, and this is a, an article that I mentioned back in episode 60 of the podcast. Uh, it's a article titled Build a Platform Game in Python with Arcade. And it's by John Fincher. And John Fincher was a very early guest on the show. Also, he was in episode two, and we talked about creating games in Python. And at the time, he had just completed a, a Pi game course, but he was at the same time dabbling with this other library called Arcade, and he was interested in creating a platform game. And it finally kind of came together over the next year. And it's a really neat article. It just really dives into step-by-step what is required to not only sort of structure uh, something like a platform game. And if you're not familiar with the term platform game, that would be like a game like Mario Brothers or... Uh, load runner is an older example of that or pitfall sort of that side scrolling you know going from platform to platform jumping or climbing and stuff like that mm-hmm. and he talks quite a bit about assets uh, where to find uh, artwork and so forth if that's not really your forte uh, he provides a whole set of assets from a, a guy named kenny nl and it dives pretty deep into the concept of maps and open source library that's called tiled where you'll be able to create the tiled sets and then designing the game goes into physics engines, a really kind of advanced concept that you have to cover when talking about a 
platform game is that the map might be much wider than it is tall as you say move from left to right or right to left depending on the layout of it and so you can only see part of the map at a t- time and this this concept of a viewport and so how to scroll that either left to right or up and down and goes into that and the arcade f- framework is really pretty useful for this it includes the right types of physics that you would need for that and um you can add sounds and i don't know it's just a really fun article to go through it's pretty detailed and so uh i think we'll talk a a few other sort of gaming concepts Uh, again i find that as a nice way to kind of practice some of your python skills uh, especially like object-oriented skills can kind of come into play in building games in there and arcade's a, a really fun library i think you get a lot out of it nice yeah did you check that one out martin I have not seen it actually, and I also didn't know what a platform game is. I just learned it now from your explanation. <laughs> so thanks for clarifying that. Okay. I always thought it's like it's a game you would play on a specific platform, like oh yeah, an operating system or or a game console or something like that. Yeah, no, it's the that that kind of genre versus like you know first person sort of view or whatever. Right. Uh, but it's that sort of scrolling left to right kind of thing and jumping up and down and moving around. But this even involved, you know, includes like areas of the map that, you know, again, you could create ladders, uh, have platforms that sort of move and can carry the, the character up and down like an elevator or something like that. It's really kind of fun. I, I had a lot of fun going through it. And again, I talked about it in a, a lot of detail in episode 60 also, if you want to check that out. Cool. Martin, do you want to go next? Yeah. So I'm going to stay with the topic and the first article that I wanted to highlight is called Make Your First Python Game, Rock, Paper, Scissors. It's a little uh, less advanced in terms of game engine, I would say. Yeah. It's it's a very nice beginner article, I thought. And I uh, it was written by Chris Wilkerson. And it came out really early this year. So I just um, didn't make it into the last wrap-up and could make it into this one. So it's been around for nearly a year. Yeah. But I really uh, liked going through this article, uh, both because uh, it's kind of one of these early step-by-step projects that you also mentioned in the last year's wrap-up, but that have been be- become much more common now on our site. Uh, and also because it reminded me of how I started to get into programming, which was a Coursera course in 2014 that was called, an, I think, Introduction to Interactive Programming with Python. So it was my, Python was my first programming language, and the first course that I took there was actually focused on making small games. And it was really fun. And I think the first project that you did in this course was a rock-paper-scissors game. So I kind of liked that approach of getting to do something practical right at the beginning, even though you don't really know any sort of programming concepts at this point. Yeah. But you just have something to build, something to work on, and it's understandable what you're doing and also why you're doing it, I guess. So I enjoyed that, and I went over this article, and I thought it does a good job in introducing you to a couple of concepts, and also building in a way that that you might work on it yourself, uh, but just walking you through the process of how how do you even build a script or a program where you start off with a small version, and you get it to work, and then it introduces some sort of you know a problem that you might run into, and then it goes into refactoring. How can you improve this? How can you use leverage some packages that are part of the standard library to to make this certain problem that you ran into go away and then 
keep going and just keep improving the program and make it more general at the end too. So yeah, I thought this article did a good job in in, in that, and I, th- I think it's a nice way to get started as 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 a beginner if you just want to try out a bit of Python and get an idea of what you can use the language for. Yeah, it makes me think of the Evan of Code conversation I had with Gerarna, where we were talking about taking your first stab at one of those problems and the fact that you can maybe come up with it with a fairly straightforward script that just goes you know all through all the different steps. But then as you think about, well, how could I optimize this? Or in the case of Advent of Code, there's like a first part and a second part typically for every day. Mm-hmm. And the second part, it would be useful if maybe you had created functions for these things that are reusable then that you can kind of continue to use throughout. And and I like how this article does the same kind of thing like you're talking about. Just, okay, yes, you can create a simple solution, but here's where you would start to think about optimizing it and and kind of like giving you that way. And that's the way I've always worked. It's just, you know, I want to solve it first, <laughs> you know, and then figure out, okay, well, how can I make this much cleaner and understandable and, you know, reproducible? Same, yeah. And I think it's really nice to to also teach this to people who are who are coming new to programming that you don't get the idea that you need to come up with a very concise and perfect solution at the beginning, but that you're actually just starting trying something out and you get a part to work and then later you can come back and make it better. And I yeah, I, I really like if if the, that sort of process or in general if this if the processes of, of developing a program or learning something about programming, if that's part of the tutorials. And I think that like this has been a part in the step-by-step projects that we've been doing more and more in this year as well, where, where you kind of like go over different steps that, that take you from, from start to finish, essentially just building something. And in some cases, then there's also a step of refactoring, for example. Yeah, it's nice. Christopher Trudeau recently created a video course on this one also. And I'll try to mention that on a couple of these articles that that a lot of them have been turned into courses over the last year also. So, Oh, yeah. And there's another one that I just wanted to mention that is by Pavel Fertig. Yeah. And build an asteroids game with Python and Pygame, exactly. Yeah. And that's uh, that was also fun. Uh, and I just wanted to mention it as part of my story of how I got into programming with this Coursera course, because that was also one of those game projects. And I think it was the final game that you built in the course. There were maybe five or six games started off with this rock, paper, scissors, and then the final one was one of these asteroid clone games. Okay. And I don't think it used Pygame Pi in that version. They, they just used the standard library wow. modules. But but yeah, I thought it was fun that, that there's uh, an equivalent uh, or similar uh, project here in, uh, in the real Python so, tutorials too. So this was Coursera. Yeah. That and was. similar path. Right, yeah. It was, it was just a game, uh, interactive programming as an... Uh, at hand of games as an introduction to just totally introduction to programming for people who are complete newcomers. Yeah, I had a good interview with uh, Pavel and we talked a lot about not only that particular uh, article that he wrote and kind of his idea of, you know, why he kind of came up with it, but what are, if you wanted to get more advanced, which was something that Pavel really wanted to do, he was much more interested in like creating a first person kind of game and, uh, 3D and using assets from uh, 3D tools like Blender and still being able to maybe program the logic with Python. And so, yeah, we talked a lot about a a language called Godot in in that conversation. And that might be like another level that you could kind of take some of the skills you learned in Python and and 
if you're you know want to go much further into game kind of development and stuff but a lot of the logic the game logic is still something that you may want to be doing in python and or their scripting language which is very similar to that hmm. cool so what do you got sadie what's your first one Okay, well, this was actually going to be my second one, but I'm going to skip it ahead to first because it kind of ties in to what you guys were talking about. (laughs) Okay. So this is, I think you had him on the show recently. This is Ricky White's article, Build a Content Aggregator in Python. I think he was last month on the show, maybe. Yeah. And this kind of ties in because, I mean, I think I've got two step-by-step projects on my list, and this is one of them. And I liked it for a really similar reason that you guys were talking about for these other articles, which was how it really walks the reader through not only how to build a content aggregator in Python, but also how to think about the process of building a content aggregator. It really kind of gets into the mind of the developer as well as trying to get into the mind of the user. Maybe, maybe you and Ricky talked about that. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was a good conversation. We dove pretty deep into like why somebody would want something like this and uh, uh-huh. the advantages of the RSS system. And uh-huh. um, yeah, I really, I really liked it. And so, if I were to summarize this article for a reader, like who it might be for, I think it, a reader who's kind of new to Django would have a really fun time with this. Also, if you're a little bit more experienced with Django, but you'd like a kind of structured path to follow. If you didn't listen to Chris and Ricky talk about it, it walks through how to set up a content aggregator with Django, specifically of the Real Python podcast, which we're on right now. And (laughs) (laughs) to do that, it kind of walks you through what RSS feeds are, walks you through how to plan out your project, how to build a Django project with the homepage view, which will show all the content that you're aggregating which in this tutorial is going to be podcasts. And then it also goes into kind of a quick introduction on how to use Django custom management commands. And I think Ricky combines that with AP Scheduler to set up. I think I think it sets up a job to get some content from the real Python RSS, RSS feed yeah, and show that on the homepage. And like you guys were talking about, what I really liked about it was how it sets up the reader to think about the project. He kind of he kind of prompts the reader to think of themselves both as a developer and then also as someone who's interacting with the finished project. So like he gives the reader a prompt, which is basically to think through like as a developer, I would like to dot, dot, dot. And then also as a user, I would like to dot, dot, dot which is really helpful because I know for me personally, when I'm starting out with like a new hobby project, I kind of get like pretty excited about it. Like that's kind of why I'm doing it in the first place. And then right. a little while into it, you find yourself kind of knee deep in a bunch of like half built features, which maybe you don't even really finish half of them. And you kind of end up with a partially completed project and like quite a few unfinished features, but not necessarily with the sense with the sense that you've finished the whole project. And so if you kind of follow Ricky's recommendation to set up all these features at the beginning, what you'd like to have done, then you end up with a pretty like complete project at the end. And of course, you've got options to add more features later, but everything's packaged up really nice. And especially if you're like a beginner to Python or Django or programming in general, then it's really nice to end up with a finished product at the end. 
yeah, it feels so much better if you if you actually have the feeling you managed to wrap something up in a good way. Yeah, it feels more complete. Some of the stuff that I really liked about it and that we mentioned on the podcast was we talked about how he added tests inside of it and how we had this little side discussion about how if you're creating something like this to put in maybe your portfolio, which has been a theme on the show a lot, uh, this idea of like, hey, you want to get deeper into Python and you want to show off what you can do if you're interested in finding a, a job, say, doing Python for somebody else or what have you, having much more complete projects in your portfolio, but projects that have tests um, or do things like you were talking about, like that ask the question of like, okay, well, you know, what is the user experience and you know, what's the developer's experience? And I thought it was a really neat project for that, but also just that it's very complete mm -hmm. as far as, you know, getting all the things sort of started. There's a lot of jumping off you can do from it. He, he, did a lot of the work for you for sort of the design stuff, you know, the HTML and CSS stuff, which he didn't really want to focus on for the article, which makes sense. But that's a whole other side area that you can spend a lot more time, you know, kind of making it your own. And um, I thought that was really kind of neat. And I had not played with the Django custom command before, and I thought that was a really fascinating part of it too, the idea that you can trigger off these commands and then you can kind of manage them within the admin and kind of how all that sort of fit together was a, a new area of Django that I hadn't played with it, which uh, I thought was great. Yeah. Really nice article, really clear and easy to follow. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. Martin and I mentioned it earlier in this episode as another suggestion for learning about creating games with Python. It's titled Using Pygame to Build an Asteroids Game in Python. The course is based on an article by Pavel Furtek, and in the course, Christopher Trudeau takes you through how to build a complete arcade game, including loading images and displaying them on screen, handling user input in order to control the game, moving objects according to game logic, detecting collisions between objects, displaying text on screen, and playing sounds. I think building games is a good way to practice your skills. And it's good exercise to use portions of Python you might not have regularly employed. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for each stage of building the game. And all RealPython courses have a transcript including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. My next one is from Leodonis, uh, Leodonis Pozo Ramos, and he, he's been very busy this year. We were talking right before we started the show, and I wanted to verify this with you guys that I, I thought he'd done over 20 articles this year, and it looks like he's done 25 articles. <laughs> That's not an official count, but it seems to be what we can kind of found, and, uh, which is just amazing. So you know, hats off to you, Leodonis. You've been doing amazing work this year. It's a lot of work to write these articles and takes a long time. So 25 is a really high number for a year, <laughs> I gotta say. Oh, yeah, it is. It's huge. Yeah. And, you know, he maybe started some of these before that. And he's like, I think, Martin, you were saying to me, he's got, you know, <laughs> several other ones in the works right now. So um, I'm excited to see what comes of it. And this one is, a, a I think, a rewrite. Uh, I think it was by Michael. So Michael Herman was 
sort of the originator of a real Python back in the day. And I think it was an article that he had done, but this was a, a revision and kind of a clarification and you know, what happens over time is there's just a need to kind of keep things fresh. And I know Martin, you've been involved in a lot of that lately <laughs> is, you know, making sure that everything kind of works the way that we want. And this one is titled Python inner functions. What are they good for? Question mark. <laughs> and, um, I, I liked it a lot. Everybody who listens to the show knows that I'm a fan of decorators and it, it dives into that quite a bit at the very end of it. But if you're not familiar with this idea that a function can have another function sort of defined inside of it. It's kind of a cool programming concept, this idea of encapsulation, the idea that you can maybe hide what that function can do or hide it from external access um, might be one of the reasons that you want to do it, that it's sort of protected and totally hidden from the global scope. So you can't really call it from outside of that uh, outer function is maybe something that you you might want for potentially security or other kind of functionality reason that you may want to keep it separate. So he talks about that. He also talks about the uh, ability to retain state with something called a closure or closure factory function. And the most common example I've seen for that is this idea that you could create a function that basically returns a function that you can kind of set parameters for. And it's really kind of a neat thing in, in Python that, you know, Functions are objects themselves, and they can be, you know, when you tell it to return something at the end of a function, that could be returning, yes, you know, a string or an integer or whatever other kind of items you want, but you could also return an entire function. And that's kind of what's happening with the factory function. And then it goes deeper into decorator functions, and that's the ability to kind of have a function travel into another function and you sort of decorate them on top with that at symbol. And that can be used for say authorization or we've had Garana talk about, uh, you know, his different articles on it. And we dove pretty deep into the idea that, Oh, you can create like something that would do logging or timing your functions or some other kind of testing types of things. But decorators are really common, especially in a lot of web programming. Uh, you see them in Django and Flask a lot. This idea that you want to be able to reuse this functionality across the library so a function can be passed into another one. I just liked it as a nice overview and kind of tying together this whole concept of how inner functions kind of work and, and the idea of nesting them. in. Mentioning again, Christopher Trudeau, he did a uh, video course of this also recently. And so I'll include links for that also. Nice. Yeah. Martin, what do you got next? My next pick, staff pick, is going to be um, a tutorial by Philip Axeny, who's also joined the Real Python team as a full time content creator this year. Yeah. And he's written this, uh, he wrote this tutorial before he joined full time, but he's did a, he, he, he did a really good job at it explaining also like how to build a how to build out a django project from start to finish so we're going back back into the django web development <laughs> there <laughs> yeah but yeah philip's been involved with the django community in berlin which is where, where he lives and he's got a good knowledge of um working with the web framework and he's done a good job in this tutorial i think of presenting how you could use django to build a little diary app for yourself uh, and well, did I already mention the 
name of the tutorial did I forget hmm. I don't think uh, so. so it's called <laughs> okay so it's called build a personal diary with Django and Python so it's all in the title already but uh, he goes uh, he goes over it's step by step and uh, also uses class based functions to build to build out the functionality of this diary app and I thought that was nice because for me myself when I work with Django I usually use function based views um, so it's always nice to see someone work with class-based views and then get this different perspective on how you could do the same thing with class-based versus function-based views. So yeah, I thought it was a, it was a nice uh, tutorial for that. Again, it's one of those step-by-step tutorials. So you can, you can go step-by-step and you can see the code for each of the steps and, and compare it to where you're at. And in case you get lost and you want to pick up at the later step, you can always just access that code as well. Um, so that's a nice feature of this types of tutorials as well. And yeah, and with, uh, so go- going back to office hours, because we mentioned them before and we said that uh, as we're, we're kind of like tackling them as a, as a team of content creators at the moment. And we're a bit playing, still finding what's, what's the right format for it, maybe, or what, what works best for the people who join. And one thing that me and Philip t- tried out together was uh, to, to do a bit of live coding here. And we, we used this article as an example where I was, uh, looking at the article first, uh, I hadn't gone through it before yeah. because there's so many articles and I never managed to go through all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we just opened it up um, during the call and then I started tackling the article as as I would if I just went through it as a learner myself. And it was fun to have Philip there on the call as well and kind of like have the, have the author of the tutorial sit in and listen to me <laughs> trying to explain and learn from the tutorial and then give, give his hints every once in a while. And I thought it was a good session that um, we didn't, of course, manage to go through the whole tutorial in this one hour sure. during office hours. But yeah, it was fun to look at it and just take some detours together with the people who were on the call as well and just discuss some thoughts about Django and how you could solve a problem. Um, yeah, I thought that was fun and I liked the article. I thought it was a good tutorial to go through. Yeah, I'm excited to see what Philip creates next. What's nice with uh, Philip as well is that he's got a background in design too. So he also looks at uh, making making the websites and the projects that he works on also look decent. So that's been nice. Yeah, he has a background in, in fonts in a very large way, <laughs> which I think is really cool. All right. What do you got, Sadie? Next, I've got Bartosh's article, Hosting a Django Project on Heroku. So where do you go when you have a built Django project from the ones we talked about? <laughs> exactly. What, <laughs> yeah, you already created a couple now. <laughs> Let's host them. What do you do with all these Django projects on your computer? <laughs> <laughs> so one reason this uh, article is pretty cool is because the real Python site itself is, I believe, yeah. hosted on Heroku, and it's built with Django. Yep, totally is. Yep. <laughs> so basically, this article is about how to build your own real Python site. Pretty cool. It, Bartosh goes through the whole step by step of how to get a bare bones Django project deployed on Heroku and all the steps in between and the prerequisites you need to get started with it. You'd want a basic understanding of how to use Django. You'd want to know how to work with Git, and you'd also want to know how to work with virtual environments. But if you don't, if you don't really have a handle on all those things, or if any of those sound unfamiliar, there's plenty of links in the article to get you started with them, which is really helpful. So it could be a good article for someone who's new to Django or someone who's got experience. Either way, it's a fun one to give a shot. 
And let's see, he goes through quite a lot of things, but he really does manage to keep it as simple and straightforward as possible. It's pretty replicatable with any kind of Django project that you're looking to deploy. The one that Bartosz goes through is as basic as as you can get. It's just a bare-bones Django project. He walks you through how to set that up and also gives you some resources for some other Django projects you could build if you want to work with those instead. He walks you through how to set your project up with Git, which you'll later use to deploy it. A big part of the article is getting set up on Heroku with a Heroku account and then getting set up on your machine to use the Heroku command line interface. And so the only time you're really using the Heroku website is at the very beginning of the tutorial. And for the rest of the article, you're working on the command line, which is pretty fun. Yeah, I thought that was really nice when I, I, I did one round of feedback on this article. And I thought it was really cool how he managed to keep everything, basically everything you can do just with CLI commands. And mm-hmm. that, that was pretty fun to go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, really cool. It was fun for me because when when going over this article, it reminded me a lot of one of my first Python experiences. I think it was, I don't know if it was like the first experience I had with Python, but it was definitely an early one. I was, you know, Googling around trying to figure out how to build a Twitter bot. And I was kind of new to Python, and I don't know what tutorial I found, but I followed some tutorial on how to use Heroku to make your script run once a day. I was like still kind of trying to learn, like, where do you put your code if you want it to run every day? Like, do I have to do it from my computer? Yeah, that's so confusing, I think. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Yeah, it, it was hard to get my mind around. I actually recently was talking to a friend about it who's trying to automate some tasks at his work. And it was a similar thing for him. He's like, can I run this script every day from my computer? And I was like, well, it's a good question. Like, you want to run it from your computer? Is your computer on? And he's like, well, not always. (laughs) And like trying to walk through that, it could be, it's definitely a learning process. that's That's the thought process. You're like, okay, I have the code here. But my computer isn't always on. <laughs> and then so how do you yeah. find a computer that's always on, but that you can still control to run your script? <laughs> and, okay, so I, I don't remember like entirely because this was like a couple years ago, but my memory of getting this set up was the tutorial directed me to Heroku and I was just working with the UI on the website. And I remember like uploading a proc file like this word proc file kind of like stuck in my head. And I was like, okay, I uploaded this proc file to Heroku, whatever that means. And I'm definitely like one of those kinds of people who wants to know where something goes and like how it's connected to other things. So like I uploaded my script, I uploaded this proc file and I was like, what the heck is that? And, and it, it worked and it felt like magic, you know, which is really cool and awesome. But the nice thing about Bartosz's tutorial is it does actually show you kind of how things are connected so it still feels you know magical i guess in a way but it doesn't feel so magical that you don't really understand what's hooked up to what and there's definitely benefits of using uis and websites but it's really nice to have the view on how to do it through the command line too so yeah i really liked that about this article it was really fun and i wish that i had it 
you know, however many years ago that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I recently reviewed his uh, video course version of this that just came out. Um, people could check it out on the site. Came out here in December also. And he provides a really nice PDF with all the different commands. But he also provides, because he's trying to do most everything in the terminal, he kind of gives commands for for Vim, which maybe takes Martin back to one of his articles there where he, he was comparing all the different types of, uh, or is this your video course, uh, comparing the different... Oh, oh yeah. yeah, the video course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, comparing the different editors and stuff. And so he shows, shows Vim, he shows commands for Git, he shows the commands for Heroku. And then I had a question about the same thing. I was like, you know, I, I dabbled with Heroku and this proc file is kind of weird. It's just P-R-O-C-F-I-L-E, no extension. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and that's just their command. Uh, you know, you set up commands in it to, to make it do specific things like you talked about. Like, oh, I want to this to have a, a worker where that can do scheduled stuff and, and so forth. And I think Heroku is a really great playground to experiment in because you know, primarily you can do a lot of stuff for free inside of it. Mm -hmm. But it's always kind of scary setting some of those types of things up, especially if you're going to set up something that's going to run all the time and mm -hmm. you get very worried about potentially getting charges. <laughs> and so uh, it's nice to have a nice explanation diving pretty deep into, you know, yeah. playing around with it. And now you got several projects to host <laughs> uh, if you're following the step-by-step. <laughs> I don't know how I, so like, it's pretty funny you talk about like it's kind of scary setting up something that's gonna yeah. run multiple times without you necessarily asking it to. And I think I got, I think I got an email from Heroku a few years ago that they're gonna like shut down this instance because I hadn't updated it recently enough or something. But like somehow this bot is still posting every day. <laughs> I really gotta log in and and tell it it can stop if it wants. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a good job. You can go you to sleep can rest now. now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I yeah. think. Why did, if they were if, if it wanted to stop, wouldn't it have stopped? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh man. Well, kind of going uh, to a different direction from hosting things. Uh, I have an article, and I mentioned this on episode fifty with David. Uh, this article is called Python and APIs a winning combo for reading public data. And it's by Pedro Pregrero. And it's really all about consuming APIs. And I think it's such a useful skill to have and a very common thing that I think people look at Python for, for doing. And, and Martin, you're going to mention later the idea of you know, scraping information from the web. Mm -hmm. Usually that requires a lot of sort of care and, and sort of grooming of what you've <laughs> scraped uh, out of these websites and define specific things that you want. Whereas with an API, you can really hone in on specifically, hey, I want this uh, information. And I had a the, one of the very first uh, courses I did for RealPython was on requests. And I spent a lot of time on that talking about the GitHub API. But this one... He provides a whole bunch of different APIs for you to play with. And I think that's really the crux of it, that you need to kind of play with these because they're all going to be formatted a little differently. They're going to have different authorization systems. They're going to have different 
sort of methods for getting into it. And uh, just to mention some of the ones, he has this fun one called the dog API that he uh, uses as an example a lot for you to kind of play along with. You can find different breeds and statistics about dogs and stuff. And then he uses a Giphy API, if that's how you pronounce it. And then COVID data one. He also, again, mentions the GitHub one and then uh, Spotify. So there's a whole bunch of them to play with. He also does a comparison at the beginning of like, okay, what is a SOAP versus a REST versus a GraphQL API? And I've talked about GraphQL a couple times on the show with a couple different people, just a very modern type of API design that allows you to have almost a query language in the API is kind of being allow you to dive in in your uh, sort of requests. Uh, you're looking for information, which I think is really cool. Is it the, the Facebook one or is that just a similar name? Uh-huh. Yep, that's from Facebook. Yep. And then he, you know, talks about endpoints, resources, the whole request and response sort of cycle, uh, how to read different status codes, headers, uh, understanding what the HTTP methods are, uh, response content, and then a, a really useful area of query parameters. But then the more advanced things that require a little more handholding is things like authentication. Uh, also, when you're pulling in lots of data, it may be coming in pages of data, data, so you may need to be able to paginate through it. And then uh, something that you should learn very early on in dabbling with APIs is the idea that you need to be a good citizen, so limiting your rate, of, like how you're gathering that data, not trying to pull all the data at once and, and so forth. Um, otherwise, you might be shut off. Um, so it talks a little bit about that. And then a bunch of practical examples, uh, which I think are really good. I think the last one is about uh, working with Google Books. And it's just a really well-written article. And again, kind of getting your hands on different APIs and working with all these kind of crucial areas of authentication and care and feeding of of working with the API. So uh, we have a lot of other content that we're, again, not going to have space to talk all about, but you know, we had a, a really great article come out this year uh, by Sebastian about fast API, about you know, kind of creating APIs. Uh, I think we have a few other resources there, but this is actually okay on the other side of it. How to use Python to to get in and start reading them? Cool. Yeah, um, I guess that ties pretty well into my next article. Yeah, that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Which is the which is the one about beautiful soup? Build a web scraper with Python. That's that's an article that I wrote quite a while ago, but then it got updated at early this year because um, what happened? And that's like just I feel it's it's so telling for how for the whole world of web scraping. Yeah, <laughs> which is that I used uh, as an example the monster.com website. It's a, a job board. Originally, and then they swapped from using static content to dynamically generated content. So the whole web scraper didn't work anymore. <laughs> so I had to re- basically rework the whole tutorial to fit a different website because it's based on sc- scraping static websites, not dynamically generated ones with JavaScript. So, but yeah. just where you already have all the HTML provided by the server and all the data is in the HTML that gets sent back to you, and then you can pick it out with with beautiful soup. That's what the idea of the article is. And it's really meant to be, uh, you know, a first step introduction to web scraping. I really like doing this introduction, introductory tutorials and kind of addressing be- beginners who are new to programming and then just trying to show them 
you know, the, the opportunities you have and things you can do when you learn a bit of programming. So this article really goes into this um, beginner step, like how do you even think about uh, where's the data on, on the website and use the developer tools to inspect the website and figure out, uh, can you, can you even visually find it? And how can you use the help of your browser to identify what's the data you're interested in? And then how can you use Python to pick out that data? And then, yeah, I'm doing that with using the requests library and then also beautiful soup later. But the whole thing only works if you have static content. It just doesn't, doesn't work with JavaScript generated content. And so when the monstercom website swapped their model they're like how they're providing the data we had to find something new and uh, what i did there was uh, i built a little fake python job por- board uh, where <laughs> you could just i just auto generated some data with with some of those libraries that can make fake da- data for you those are all fake that's those why fake that's jobs. why no one replied to me huh <laughs> 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 yeah, well, I guess. <laughs> I thought I thought they just didn't like my resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't apply there. Actually, <laughs> it's good. Good to mention that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, uh, this new website is is a actual static website that that we're hosting ourselves on on GitHub now. Um, so it's not going to change in structure, right? And the rework of the article just goes through the same steps as the original article did, but now it does it towards this fake. Python job board website so that you can just learn how to inspect the data and then how to fetch it and then how to parse it so that you can pick out the information that you're interested in. Yeah, cool. Yes, uh, I talked to Kimberly Fessel about web scraping and she had a really good tutorial at PyCon 2020. Kind of went into a lot of the same kind of things. Yeah, web scraping in Python tools, techniques, and legality. Mm-hmm. It's uh, episode 12. Hmm. It's also good to mention what what you said about APIs that you want to be a good citizen when you when you yeah take data from the internet essentially uh, same with web scraping like you don't want to you know just send a ton of requests to a site and and just automatically uh, to automatically get the data because it's going to overload their servers so there's a balance there and and yeah the question about legality is interesting one I, I wasn't able to get like a completely clear answer to is it legal or not um i've read articles that say big headlines web scraping is for sure legal now Mm -hmm. but then they still mention things about you gotta be aware of the terms of service of a site what you do with the data and it must also depend on where the company is located and their right yeah yeah it seems pretty complex but i think the the rule of thumb that i think generally is probably okay but don't quote me on it is that if you're just using it for yourself or for educational contexts and you're not rude by just sending thousands of re- requests per second, right. then you should be fine scraping some content. Yeah, she mentions a link to this ruling in the high Q H I Q versus LinkedIn huh. yeah, yes. uh, case <laughs> that was by EFF.org. And it, it kind of talks about, you know, scraping of this sort of public data, something like LinkedIn or whatever. But yeah, I mean, you can run afoul of it pretty easily so yeah, it's philosophically interesting because if it's publicly available you could go there and just copy it manually right or even even if it's not publicly uh, publicly available but you can sign up with an account and you do have an account then you, again you could still access it so 
Right. Uh, the What's the difference between me individual doing it or my robot friend doing it? <laughs> right. You know, yeah. It's just depending on, <laughs> you know, being a good citizen uh-huh. to that uh, and not getting too much attention, I guess. <laughs> but I'm not a lawyer. I know, I, I'm sure there is some right. very fine differences between one and the other. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's kind of another somewhat almost step-by-step kind of thing too yeah but it's from a different time so it wasn't it wasn't written in that form or with the idea of a step-by-step but i guess step-by-step yeah it's (laughs) step-by-step i guess i like those tutorials a lot because that's the way that i learn and teach so they kind of fit well my my workflow here i think yeah and you have a video course that is similar but slightly different details uh inside of it right Luckily, I chose a different uh, ah. job board for the video course, and that uh, that was Indeed.com. And to my knowledge, they're still serving static content, so it should still work. <laughs> so maybe we should Sweet. check the terms of service. <laughs> Sweet. So what do you got, Sadie? What's your, what's your last one? Let's see. My last one is Anthony Shaw's article. It's called Advanced Visual Studio Code for Python Developers, and it came out. I think a month or two ago. It's a sequel to John Fincher's article from 2019, which was called Python Development in Visual Studio Code. And so what Anthony's article kind of builds on from John's is that John kind of walks the reader through how to install VS Code on your machine and also how to do some kind of basic setup and how to, for example, run a Python script inside VS Code. So on top of that, Anthony gives a pretty comprehensive guide on what's been useful for him as a developer in terms of like quite deep customizations for VS Code compared to the other article. He goes in, he starts off with setting up keyboard shortcuts He shows you how to customize the VS Code user interface and how to set up and customize your terminal profiles, which I believe his customizations have been like pretty popular. I think Martin uses them in some of his video courses. And uh, I have it in one of the video courses because I've also been doing the technical review for Anthony's for this tutorial from Anthony. So I had to go through everything and make sure that it works. Right. And so my terminal still was set up in that way when I recorded the video course. And it's, I think it's gotten pretty nice feedback. So people like the way. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's nice to have this article published so that, so that Martin can respond to comments, pointing them to like, a pretty clear way to, to set it up. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> so he starts off with that. He does go pretty deep. He kind of walks you through conceptually and also practically how to get set up, how to set up a project for yourself that you're just going to be working on personally and also how to set up a project for teams because you need to have different settings for these different types of projects. Yeah, it's really nice to learn about the settings files in VS Code on, on a project basis or for your whole um, editor. And like all the different yeah, settings you can do in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, he sets up linting and formatting. He shows you how to configure and execute tests. He also shows you how to set up different automations and use take advantage of what I think VS Code calls tasks. He walks you through how to use VS Code for debugging. And then he goes a little bit into setting up Jupyter Notebooks for use inside VS Code, which is pretty cool. For example, you can view graphs and plots like straight in, straight in VS Code. I haven't tried it out. I don't have VS Code installed, but it looks pretty cool from the article. 
one day I'm going to try it out. And then he also shows you how to explore the VS Code extension marketplace. And he walks through a couple extensions that have been useful for him, such as a code spell checker. He also shows the Rainbow CSV extension. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if that's one that he's showing you how to install from the marketplace or if it's yeah, a built-in one. It's yeah? an external one to uh-huh. install. Yeah. And anyways, it makes the CSV files look a lot nicer if you're looking at CSV files. Yeah, you can see different colors that help you with the levels of, of CSV. Yeah, per column or what have you. Yeah, Whenever great. I'm opening CSV files, I always wonder, like, does anybody look at them? Or am I the only person who's like looking at straight CSV files? And seeing this in the article, I was like, oh, phew. I'm not the only one that like sometimes uses CSV files instead of like putting it in a database. Yeah, sometimes you have to (laughs) (laughs) just to kind of see like, especially if it's doing something weird too. Uh It's And it's nice when it looks nice. Yeah. So Anthony shows you how to do that. And he also even plugs a little extension he's made himself called VS Code Pets, which I... (laughs) <laughs> like I said, I don't have VS Code, so I haven't tried it. But yeah, I tried it out. I it got myself cute. a little cat that jumps, jumps around. In VS what, is, Code. what does it do? I've been following him on Twitter, and he has all kinds of. I mean, there's a snake, of course, um, <laughs> but there's a cat and there's a dog, and it can kind of follow your you know cursor around. I, I remember these kinds of things before for like desktop stuff, but now it looks like it has a cool little background. <laughs> I remember it too from some really old, like some old Windows operating systems where you could yeah. switch on. I think I had a little black cat there that would like just yeah. run around on your desktop <laughs> and follow your mouse, and you could pick it up. You know, like right. how you can pick up cats at the at the back of their neck, and then you could yeah. lift it up and then drop it from the top of so the desktop, and it would always land on its feet and, and continue <laughs> walking it, around. Is this Neopets or is Neopets something else? I don't know the name. I think that's more like a standalone thing. Oh, that's a different thing. Okay, okay. Yeah. But I think you use a, like a thing where you can like toss a ball for it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And yeah, let me see about Anthony's article. Super useful. If you're wondering if this would be a good article for you to check out, it seems like it would be really helpful if you're already using VS Code. Maybe you love it. Maybe you're not super impressed with it, but you haven't really customized it much. If that sounds like you, then it's definitely an article that you might be interested in. It could also be helpful if you're using another editor or IDE and you're hoping to switch or just like expand and have another option. That's kind of the, that's the category that I fall under. It would probably be pretty helpful. I currently use Sublime Text, which is great. And I have it customized fine, but reading over this article, I was definitely feeling like, oh, can I do all this in Sublime or should I check out VS Code? Some combination of the two. I think they're generally quite similar to two and you can probably do a lot of the customizations. But VS Code, from my absorbance understanding of Python of code editor stuff has just uh, had a lot of input lately. Like people like it a lot. And so there's been a lot of development happening there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had Savannah on to talk about it in... The I'm trying to get her to come back on the show because they've had so many advances to VS Code over the last uh, last year, including being able to run VS Code straight from GitHub. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that's a fun feature. <laughs> you, you press the dot uh, add dot dev or whatever, so you can be like editing right there. It's really neat, and the stuff that he's showing of of being able to do like Docker remote mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of those kinds of things are 
kind of unique. Like I, I'm, I'm was a sublime user also. Um, I had uh, started with Dan's tutorials on it nice. and uh, how to set it up for Python back when I was kind of getting started in the Python world. But VS Code has definitely taken over for me. And um, there's a lot of, I mean, this is a great, great resource for anybody wanting to really take advantage of it and get much more advanced with it. And yeah, there's a ton of settings <laughs> that he's covering in it. Yeah, um, really so, yeah, are. It took a while for this to to get through the process, but um, yeah, I feel like it know, was. You guys did a great job in the pipeline for <laughs> at least a year. No, not quite. Maybe six months. Long time. Long time. <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, I had a couple quick things, just kind of quick mentions, special mentions that you know, we're kind of running out of time to cover so many articles that came out this year, but we've had some really great ones from the data science kind of side of RealPython. There's a bunch of really great authors that have created stuff. So I'm going to mention two. One is titled Python AI, How to Build a Neural Network and Make Predictions. That's by Deborah Mesquita. And it recently got turned into a course by Douglas Starnes. Uh, it's just a really nice dive into that world of Python AI. And this one, you're actually talking about the structure of what a neural network is and then sort of building one from scratch, a very simple one. And then uh, there's uh, another one by Mirko Stojilkovic. It's called Stochastic Gradient Descent Algorithm with Python and NumPy. And that one, I I think we mentioned David and I back on an earlier episode. But again, just kind of diving deeper into some of these data science concepts and like the concept of a basic gradient descent algorithm and how to apply that and and so forth. And so there's a, a ton of great data science stuff, though we didn't mention a bunch of it in our personal selections throughout this. Um, you know, please check it out. Um, we definitely focus a lot on step-by-step stuff, you know, getting your hands dirty and, and playing around with Python. Do you guys have any other uh, special mentions? Um, we had an article come out the day of this recording by another new core team member, Ian Curry. Oh, yeah. His article's called Predify your data structures with pretty print in Python. Lots of P's. Lots of P's. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, alliteration. Yeah, it's a lot of alliteration. And it's even a lot of alliteration when importing it. I think it's kind of like from pretty print, import pretty print. You can like alias it as PP. So <laughs> yeah, you can really go all out with the P's. But that's a really that's a really um, clear and fun and to the point art- article about how to use Pretty Print to make your JSON more readable. Nice, yeah, that's very handy. That's Ian's first article on the site, which is really exciting. Yeah, Ian also recently joined the core team, and uh, so this is the first article he ever wrote for Red Python. Um, but yeah, I guess in the next next year's review, we're gonna probably see more of his articles around. Yeah. Yeah, him and Philip and, and Bartosz. And uh, I had that interview with Gerarna, who's now part of the core team. I had talked about that in his recent episode. So a lot of a lot of changes this year. A lot of great stuff to come. Yeah. Well, I, I really want to thank you both for coming on the show, Martin and, and Sadie. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so Fine. much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Happy you too. 2022. <laughs> wow. Wow. <Yeah. laughs> Right. Put 2021 behind us. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to believe. All right. Well, thanks. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Um, Have a good thing. one. I want to thank Sadie and Martin for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player 
And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.